I can't think I'll keep showing this slide every Bible study just because it's a reminder of where we are. Okay, and where we are is splitting of the kingdoms. Remember Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and Jeroboam. Um, we described what happened several times here in 931 BC. Okay, and then we have these two kingdoms, 10 northern tribes, and then Judah and Benjamin here. And so these are the prophets that we're talking about uh, during this time. So we're going through the Bible uh, chronologically because we really, the, getting the story is everything. You can't just pull verses out of the Bible and not understand what's going on in context. Okay, so we talked about Elijah and Elisha, and now here Jonah, okay, who's mentioned in uh, the book of Kings. Here we have a little book about Jonah, and as I said, uh, we have Jesus talking about uh, Jonah. And I put him in the middle here because here he gives his message to the enemy, the Assyrians. Remember, 722 BC, this is when the cruel Assyrians, remember last time we talked about, um, they were just renowned for their cruelty, that how surprising it is that Jonah would be sent to the capital of Syria, Nineveh. Okay, so prophet to the enemy. And you know the, how the book begins here. God said, go to Nineveh, that great city, and speak out against it. I am aware of how wicked its people are. Jonah, however, set out in the opposite direction in order to get away from the Lord. And somehow, I don't know how best to identify with uh, Jonah's uh, thoughts or emotions. So I've tried to imagine, can you imagine God coming to you in the middle of the night? Who would be an enemy that God would send you to that maybe you would be very repulsed? It becomes clear when we get to the end of the book why Jonah didn't go to Nineveh. Okay, so let's just imagine here God told you, you know what, I'd like you to go off to Al-Qaeda. I'm aware how wicked these people are, and I have a message. Okay, how would you feel about that? Maybe then we can identify, I mean, the, the rivalry, the ongoing battles between um, Assyria and Israel were so intense, so bitter, okay, that, that I'm sure it was a very uh, visceral, strong reaction. You're sending me to that city. That's, that's impossible. Okay, but here's the story. But the Lord, remember, he got on the boat, okay, and there's a big storm, and the Lord sent a strong wind on the sea, and the storm was so violent that the ship was in danger of breaking up. The sailors were terrified and cried out for help, each one to his own God. Then, in order to lessen the danger, they threw the cargo overboard. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone below and was lying in the ship's hold, sound asleep. The captain found him there and said to him, What are you doing asleep? Get up and pray to your God for help. Maybe he will feel sorry for us and spare our lives. The sailors said to each other, let's draw lots and find out who is to blame for getting us into this danger. They did so, and Jonah's name was drawn. And so they said to him, now then tell us, who is to blame for this? What are you doing here? What country do you come from? What is your nationality? It's interesting how many times uh, God worked with people in their culture, drawing lots. Remember, Achan was chosen by drawing lots. Here, Jonah is chosen by drawing lots. Um, even the disciple to replace Judas was chosen by drawing lots. Okay, so, you know, God is willing to, to stoop to meet people in, in the culture and, and the methods uh, of that time. Okay, and Jonah responded, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the land and sea. It must have made quite an impact on these men. And he went on to tell them that he was running away from the Lord. The sailors were terrified and said to him, that was an awful thing to do. <laughs> and the storm was getting worse all the time. So the sailors asked him, 
What should we do to you to stop the storm? What should we do to you? And Jonah answered, Throw me into the sea, and it will calm down. I know it is my fault that you are caught in this violent storm. And I just imagine Jonah, uh, remember Jesus slept in the bottom of the boat that was involved in a storm. And here we have Jonah. I mean, it was probably so intense uh, running away from God that uh, in comparison, uh, the boat in a violent storm, I didn't even care about that. He's down in the boat here sleeping. So his conscience was, I think, bothering him. And uh, so his feeling is, well, just toss me into the sea and that'll be the end of it. So at the Lord's command, a large fish swallowed Jonah, and he was inside the fish for three days and three nights. And I think we're not going to go into, a lot of people have said, well, were there fish this big, uh, this big in that area, maybe a great white? Uh, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I think God can, uh, God can do anything he wants that is uh, spectacular of this nature. And I'm going to explain here why I think maybe he did it this way. But here's a kind of a, a challenge along the way. Here, a little footnote. Here in Matthew 12, in the same way that Jonah spent three days and nights in the big fish, so will the Son of Man spend three days and nights in the depths of the earth. Now, here's the challenge. Uh, when, when did Jesus die? What night? Friday night? Resurrected? Which day? Sunday? Okay. How many days and nights was Jesus in the tomb? And if you just uh, do a search on this, uh, like I did last night, page after page, of, um, you see the one sign Jesus gave, the only sign uh, proved to be false because he really wasn't in the tomb three nights. And many people have um, said, well, maybe he didn't die Friday night. Let's move it up to Wednesday and you know, uh, try to figure this out. But uh, I'm sure some of you are aware of this, but many things in the Bible that seem to be uh, a problem are really not a problem. Once, once you have uh, uh, understood more, maybe put it in context. And so this have to do, has to do with something known as the uh, inclusive reckoning of time, which is how the Hebrews understood time. And this is a quote from a rabbi in about 100 AD who said, a day and a night are an ona, if I'm saying that right, which means a portion of time. And the portion of an ona is as the whole of it. In other words, if something happened during one part of the day, okay, then that is all encompassing of the day and night. Okay, so we have Friday, day and night, Saturday, day and night, Sunday, day and night. So again, they're, they're a way of thinking of things. And, and I understand there are still some cultures in the Middle East that, uh, that look at it that way. For example, uh, a child may be born in December. And that child is considered to be one year old, born in that year. Okay, move forward one month, January, and the child is now two years old because we're in the second calendar year. And we just don't think about it that way. Okay, for us, the child is not one, not until 364, but 365 days later. Now the child is one. Okay, so it's just is a different way of uh, considering time. And there's a little bit of uh, evidence uh, from the Bible on this. Jesus said, go and tell that fox, I am driving out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I shall finish my work. Now, if I were to tell you, and you know, in three days, I'm going to finish my work, in your mind, what are you thinking? Okay, 24 hours from now, that's Friday. Another 24 hours, that's Saturday. Another 24 hours, that's Sunday. Okay, we think of it that way. Okay, again, that's, that's not the way that they considered uh, time. And going all the way back to the book of Esther, 
where Esther said, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. <clears throat> I and my maids will also fast as you do, then I will go to the king. Okay, so three days, three nights of fasting, then she's going to go to the king, well, we would think the fourth day, but Esther went before the king on the third day. So it doesn't mean necessarily that it was, uh, it was on the third day. Okay, any part of that day would still be considered the third day, not necessarily the, the day after that. Okay, so I think really this uh, should not be a problem if we consider how, how they looked at time. Now, here's another interesting thought. Now, this may not be true. Okay, I tried to do as much research as I could on this, but remember we talked about the fish god, Dagon, who was the god of the Philistine city. Remember the covenant box was captured, they brought the covenant box in, and the fish god kept being toppled over. Okay, that clearly was the fish god. Now, some people believe that uh, the god of uh, Nineveh, this coastal city, uh, may also have been uh, Dagon, the fish god. You know, a few quotes on this. <clears throat> What better heralding as a divinely sent messenger to Nineveh, <clears throat> excuse me, could Joseph have had, I'm sorry, Jonah have had, <clears throat> than to be thrown up out of the mouth of a great fish in the presence of witnesses on the coast of Phoenicia where the fish god was a favorite object of worship. <clears throat> Such an incident would have inevitably aroused the mercurial nature of oriental observers so that a multitude would be ready to follow the seemingly new avatar of the fish god proclaiming the story of his uprising from the sea as he went on his mission to the city where the fish god had its very center of worship. Um, so again, maybe Dagon wasn't. Some people believe uh, that uh, Dagon was the god of this city, but certainly we can say uh, historically that people have chosen their gods uh, to uh, reflect what is important to them. Okay, and so if you're a coastal city, I think it's fair to say that uh, they would have had some gods that would have um, wanted to have some influence over the sea. And so what better influence then? What does Jonah do? I mean, don't you think people were aware of this? Here comes this man out of the belly of a great fish to Nineveh. Don't you think that made a, quite an impact on people? They saw this man coming up from a fish. It would have been uh, quite impressive. And it gave a little weight maybe to his uh, message. Maybe they listened to him a little bit more because of uh, his arrival. <clears throat> Okay, now the other thing I want to just talk about in, in coming back to the New Testament, okay, we talked about the three days and three nights, but uh, what can we say about the sign of Jonah? Okay, and this is uh, referred to twice in the New Testament, once in Matthew 12, and then another time in Luke, and the, there's a slight variation here, <clears throat> but when the teachers of the law and some Pharisees spoke up, uh, teacher, they said, we want to see you perform a miracle. How evil and godless are the people of this day, Jesus exclaimed. You ask me for a miracle. No, the only miracle you will be given is the miracle of the prophet Jonah. In the same way that Jonah spent three days and nights in the big fish, so will the Son of Man spend three days and nights in the depths of the earth. On the judgment day, the people of Nineveh will stand up and accuse you because they turned from their sins when they heard Jonah preach. And I tell you that there is something here greater than Jonah. Okay, notice the slight difference here in Luke. Okay, and Jesus said, How evil are the people of this day? They ask for a miracle, but none will be given them except the miracle of Jonah. In the same way that the prophet Jonah was a sign for the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be a sign for the people of this day. So Luke emphasizes the meaning for that time, and Matthew, it's uh, 
more of the emphasis is on the uh, Judgment Day, Ibid. Um, can we spell out a little bit more what is the, the sign of Jonah? Okay, and, and there are a number of parallels between Jonah and Jesus. It's, it's uh, rather interesting. You know, they both voluntarily entered the, the depths of the sea, or in Jesus' case, the grave, in order to save others. Okay, we explained the three days and three nights. Uh, very obvious parallel there. <clears throat> and then Jonah's prayer <clears throat> from the whale, I found uh, interesting. From deep inside the fish, <clears throat> he prayed, In my distress, O Lord, I called to you, and you answered me. From deep in the world of the dead, and uh, most of your translations say from the belly of Sheol or from hell, I cried for help, and you heard me. You threw me down into the depths, to the very bottom of the sea, where the waves were all around me, and all your mighty waves rolled over me. I thought I had been banished from your presence and would never see your holy temple again. <clears throat> and if we bring in some of the messianic uh, psalms to this, there is a lot of parallel. Jesus caps, uh, cast down into the depths of Sheol. Um, there are interesting parallels, again, between Jonah's prayer and uh, Jesus. You know, J Jonah said, I thought I had been banished for your, from your presence. You know, what did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Okay, and then, of course, we have a resurrection of sorts. For Jonah's case, it was from the sea, from a fish. And, of course, Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And in both cases, there was a great revival. Nineveh repented. Okay, and in the case of uh, Jesus, uh, of course, that's the, the birth of the Christian church. And uh, Pentecost, and uh, wonderful things uh, that began happening. And finally, the last interesting parallel is Jonah <clears throat> walked around for 40 days, apparently, uh, or said that in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. <clears throat> and Jesus, after his, his resurrection, during the 40 days after his crucifixion, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked about the kingdom of God. So um, lots of very direct parallels. Now, at the very end, I'm going to say there's one very dramatic difference between Jonah and uh, Jesus that is, I think, very important, but there are some similarities. <clears throat> okay, so let's pick up here with the story. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah up on the beach, and it did. And once again, the Lord spoke to Jonah. He said, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to the people the message I've given you. So Jonah obeyed the Lord and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to walk through it. Now again, three days, that may not be three full days. <laughs> Okay, might have started walking Thursday night and got to the other end Sunday morning. We don't know. <clears throat> Jonah started through the city, and after walking a whole day, he proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. <clears throat> the people of Nineveh believed God's message, so they decided that everyone should fast, and all the people, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth to show that they had repented. And again, I think a dramatic arrival of Jonah from the fish probably had... Uh, was, was his, uh, uh, what made him credible, his message credible. And when the king of Nineveh heard about it, he got up from his throne, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. He sent out a proclamation to the people of Nineveh. This is an order from the king and his officials. No one is to eat anything. All persons, cattle and sheep. How do you keep cattle and sheep from eating anything? I just, just wondered. I don't know. All persons and animals must wear sackcloth. Can you imagine the animals with sackcloth on? <laughs> Everyone must pray earnestly to God 
and must give up their wicked behavior and their evil actions. Okay? Was it generally agreed upon that uh, what were the wicked behavior and actions? Well, they must give them up. And then he would go on to say, perhaps God will change his mind. Perhaps he will stop being angry and we will not die. And God saw what they did. He saw that they had given up their wicked behavior. And so he changed his mind and did not punish them as he said he would. Okay, so um, our, our question here, okay, and this is not, um, you, you could believe uh, either way. I think this is not a salvation issue here, obviously, but did God really change his mind? Because, um, boy, we could line up a whole bunch of verses on either side of the equation here. Let me list some that suggest God does not change his mind. From Numbers 23, God is not like people who lie. He is not a human who changes his mind. Whatever he promises, he does. He speaks, and it is done. Okay, and from 1 Samuel 15, Israel's majestic God does not lie or change his mind. He is not a human being. He does not change his mind. Okay, what do we do? We have these, uh, he does or he doesn't. Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. Okay, would not suggest a changing there. And in James 1, all generous giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or the slightest hint of change. Now, this is a pretty dramatic change, wouldn't you say? Nineveh will be destroyed. God changed his mind. And then I have to quote this in the King James here just because it's so authoritative. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord, I change not. Okay, so uh, which is it? Did he change his mind or not? Um, well, maybe before we discuss it a little more, uh, anyone want to say something or have, have some suggestions about God changing his mind? Okay, I think that's a very good point. I don't know if you could all hear that about uh, conditional prophecies. You know, and, and we could point to things like uh, the new temple that's described in such detail in Ezekiel was never built. Uh, what do we do with, with some of these things? So I think that's a good point. Uh, now, just maybe before we uh, uh, answer that, let me just maybe point a little bit of um, stuff that could be said on the other side. Do we take these expressions literally uh, in the Bible? Remember Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes, and God says, where are you? And... Uh, did he really not know? You know, boy, I've been looking for you guys for hours. I have no idea. And, um, you know, so, so some of these things here, and, and as we discussed, why did God say that? It, and, and the way I like to think of it is it was the least threatening way to approach them. Could have just, boom, he's right there. Okay, but instead he calls out, where are you? Okay, so uh, again, this... Uh, um, I think we could see some of this as God speaking a language we can understand for our own benefit. Or how about this? Remember the rainbow here after the flood, and God would say, when the rainbow appears, I will remember, and I will not send another flood. As uh, the rainbow like a little uh, string around God's finger, and he oh, I was just about to send another flood, and then I, I saw the, the rainbow. Again, isn't this an expression for, uh, for their benefit? Wouldn't you be terrified after a flood? And you see the rainbow, and it brings reassurance. Okay, God's going to remember and he's not going to send another flood. Isn't that for their benefit? Or how about the Tower of Babel? We just so many of these. The Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. They didn't really have good data from heaven. He had to come down and, uh, and check it out and find out if it, what it was really like. Again, we take all of these expressions just uh, 
in a very literal sense. And how about this with Sodom and Gomorrah? Then the Lord said to Abraham, remember they came down, they had a meal together, and he said, there are terrible accusations against Sodom and Gomorrah, and their sin is very great. I must go down to find out whether or not the accusations which I have heard are true. Okay, doesn't have that information from heaven, needs to come down personally and uh, check it all out. And again, I think God came down because he wanted to have a conversation with Abraham. Okay, so, uh, but again, it's expressed that way. You think about this one in Jeremiah 7.31. In Hinnom Valley, they have built an altar called Topheth so that they can sacrifice their sons and daughters in the fire. This is God talking. I did not command them to do this. It did not even enter my mind. Okay, now that's, you know, this is just, uh, God is communicating again, I think, in, in words that uh, help us understand perhaps his, his uh, emotions in all of this. Remember we talked about, for those of you who were here last year, when uh, the people are rebelling, they're dancing around a golden calf, and uh, God says, I'm going to destroy those people. Okay, and remember Moses pled with God, and at least how I tried to describe the story last year is God was trying to reveal something here, and I think what he was trying to reveal was the heart of Moses, who said, if you're going to destroy these people, destroy me also. Don't make of me a, a great nation, God. It revealed really a wonderful example of selfless love. But here we have another example of God changing his mind. So the Lord changed his mind and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Well, he certainly didn't do what he said he was going to do. So it it, it appeared as if he changed his mind. I think think there was just a revelatory point that God wanted to make make in this story. Okay, here's another one uh, from the book of Judges. For those of you here last year, we talked about rebellion, 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 fighting, killing, a horrible book, okay? And uh, in the midst of this, God said, did I not rescue you from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites? When they oppressed you, you cried out to me and I rescued you. Yet you have abandoned me and served other gods. And so we have a very definitive statement here. So I will not rescue you anymore. Now, if God says it, We believe it. That's all there is to it, right? I will not rescue you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them rescue you in your hour of distress. Okay, it's it's kind of uh, similar here to the message of Jonah. But the Israelites pleaded with the Lord and said, We have sinned. Punish us as you see fit. Only rescue us today from our enemies. And then the Israelites put aside their foreign gods and served the Lord. And he was grieved by their misery. An interesting description here of God. He was grieved by their misery. And did he help them again? thousand times more. Okay, the whole rest of the Old Testament is God helping these people, even though he said, I will not rescue you anymore. Okay, so he came again with a very dramatic message. Okay, and it worked. People responded and he helped them again. Okay, so uh, again, it's, I think, a a way of uh, communicating, and I think God is willing to use words that will work. Okay, and uh, in this case, it did. So I think we could see the the message of Jonah in that light also. So if we come back to some of these, there is no change, I change not, no variation. Um, I would just like to suggest that God's character is a constant that never changes. Now, the circumstances vary. Okay, and just like a parent, you have some children that are very obedient, others that may be rebellious. Okay, you will need to use different uh, methods. Okay, but you could still say that the character of that person And in God's case, it is 
uh, love personified in every situation, always dealing in each situation with the most uh, loving and just uh, possible way of meeting that situation. So we go through all of these. Uh, I think we, in my own personal uh, opinion on this is that God knew what it would take to get that city to repent. And so he sent Jonah in a fish in a very dramatic way. He said the city is going to be destroyed, and it worked. Uh, they repented. But I think it was God's, part of God's plan. I mean, he sent Jonah, right? If he, why didn't he just destroy the city? If it was 100% settled in his mind that he was going to wipe them out, he sent Jonah there to try to stimulate uh, their repentance. Anyway, so let's, uh, let's read on here the rest of the story. Now, of course, they repented. And you would think here, Jonah, man, it worked. You know, he should be happy. But he was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. This is why he didn't go in the first place. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. Okay, these are his enemy, right? The Assyrians. He doesn't want them to repent. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and I wish that you weren't so loving, God, because that's why I didn't want to go there in the first place. And ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. Now, this is the Message Bible, so you know it's very colorful, but you can read this in any uh, translation. Um, that's why he didn't go to Tarshish. God, I know you're so loving, so eager to forgive, okay? And uh, those people, I don't want to uh, repent. And so notice, so God, if you won't kill them, kill me. Isn't it kind of interesting, the parallel here with Moses? God, if you're going to wipe these people out, take my life uh, as well. And here, Jonah, God, if you're not going to kill them, uh, kill me as well. I'm better off dead. Okay, how does God deal with this uh, prophet? And this is an interesting exchange here at the end of the book. The Lord answered, what right do you have to be angry? Jonah went out east of the city and sat down. And he went up there, I think, to see maybe it'll be destroyed and to get a good view up there on the hill. And he made a shelter for himself and sat in its shade, waiting to see what would happen to Nineveh. Maybe, just maybe, they'll rebel again and God will destroy them. And then the Lord made a plant grow up over Jonah to give him some shade so that he would be more comfortable. Yeah, that was nice. Okay, but I, I think there's a, there's a teaching point here. Jonah was extremely pleased with the plant. But at dawn the next day, at God's command, a worm attacked the plant, and it died. And the sun had risen. God sent a hot east wind, and Jonah was about to faint from the heat of the sun beating down on his head. So he wished he were dead. Again, Jonah's always wishing, uh, wishing for this. I am better off dead than alive, he said. But God said to him, what right do you have to be angry about the plant? And Jonah replied, I have every right to be angry, angry enough to die. I mean, imagine talking to God like this. And the Lord said to him, this plant grew up in one night and disappeared the next. You didn't do anything for it, and you didn't make it grow, yet you feel sorry for it. How much more then should I have pity on Nineveh, that great city? After all, it has more than 120,000 innocent children in it, as well as many animals. And people don't agree on, on how to translate this. Uh, so I'll just put another translation here. But he said, so why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure, this big city of more than 120,000 childlike people 
who don't yet know right from wrong, to say nothing of all of the innocent animals. In other words, it's a big city, and I don't know if they for that many children or childlike people, but it's a big city full of adults, children, animals, and God is saying, don't you even care about all these people? Don't you care about the children at least, the animals? Okay, and so I think the message here is it's a big city, children, animals. Had it been destroyed, Jonah would have been very happy. Okay, and here we have as a parallel a very tiny shade plant. It was destroyed. Great anger and depression for Jonah. Okay, so um, we have this, um, you know, I, I'm just uh, always amazed at uh, God's uh, teaching methods here, which I think are very. Uh, this must have had an impact, I hope, on Jonah, maybe in, in the long run. So uh, the point I'd like to make just in uh, conclusion here, we've talked about all the parallels between Jesus and Jonah, but there are some very di- uh, important differences for us. We want to be uh, like Jesus, not Jonah. So Jonah desired for the destruction of his enemies, and of course Jesus desired the redemption of his enemies. Okay, if there's any doubt, we just listen to what Jesus said uh, on the cross. Father, forgive them. Okay, very, very dramatic difference there. And um, I think the take-home point, remember we're trying to ask of every story, what does this say about God? Okay, there's a great message in Jonah, here in a more traditional translation. You are a kind, merciful God. You're very patient. You always show love. And you don't like to punish anyone, not even foreigners, not even our enemies. Okay, that's the take-home point. That's what God is like. And coming back to this subject, we talked last time about Love for enemies. Now we have so many examples of that in in the Elisha story last time. An amazing story about love for enemies. And we said this is such a central message of Jesus. And so let's just read this passage because I I think it is really important, ties in with Jonah. Where Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's in the Old Testament. Okay, not anymore. But now I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap your left cheek too. If someone takes you to court to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. Wouldn't that be hard? You're a national enemy. You've got to carry it an extra mile. Okay, and, and we went into more details last time that this is not weakness. This is a very powerful action when you do that. When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something, lend it to him. You have heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies. Okay, that's the the Jonah uh, paradigm. But now I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may become the children of your Father in heaven. Notice, what is the, um, uh, to become a child of our Father in heaven? Uh, This is in the context of love for enemies. So that you may become the children of your Father in heaven. And notice, This is what God is like. For he makes his sun to shine on bad and good people alike and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. And isn't that true? I mean, we can't go throughout the world and say, okay, this area gets, uh, you know, the right amount of rain and so on. So those are the best people living there. I mean, God indiscriminately, we get the sun, the rain. Okay, God is kind to good and evil people. So why should God reward you if you love only the people who love you? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you speak only to your friends, have you done anything out of the ordinary? Even the pagans do that. Now, here's the challenging part. You must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, and I think uh, 
naturally, we're all a little bit threatened by that. We must be perfect. Is this uh, perfectionism? Okay, we're talking about here. Again, don't take this verse out of context. Being like becoming the child of our Father in heaven, becoming perfect, this is all in the context of treating people, even enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for them. Carry the pack the extra mile. And uh, really what this, uh, this word perfect, what it really means is to be mature, to grow up. So if we're just going to look through this uh, whole section again here, yes, the old model is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Grow up. Be like God. And don't take revenge. Okay? Someone slaps you on the right cheek. Uh, grow up. Be more like God. Turn the other cheek. Okay? The Romans ask you to carry your pack one mile. Uh, their pack one mile. Carry it an extra mile. Be like God. Don't we see that in Jesus Christ? Okay? Uh, you've heard it said, love your friends, hate your enemies. Uh, grow up, be mature, be like God, and love your enemies. And so this whole thing of perfection, it's, it, it can't be taken out of the context of what Jesus is talking about. And that's exactly how the Message Bible, coming back to this again, how it translates this, perfection, he simply says, uh, grow up, okay? be more like God. Okay, so perfectionism, uh, boy, that's a very, uh, I guess, a negative term, but in this context, it's not about, okay, how is our church attendance uh, we pay and tithe, um, how's our dress, our diet, those kinds of things. Uh, what is really important here in this context is how are we treating people? And not just our friends, how are we treating people that uh, aren't treating us very well? Okay, so again, uh, we want to be like Jesus in this story, uh, not Jonah. Father, thank you for a story that um, in many ways is just so clear, uh, that you are kind, that you are gracious, that you are forgiving, uh, even to people that care nothing about you, even towards your enemies. Uh, please help us to uh, be more like that, to be more like you. Amen.